You're listening to Savage Wonder, a podcast about warriors and artists. It's long-form one-on-one conversations with veterans in the arts. This show is produced by the Veterans Repertory Theater, which is a creative hub for talented veterans and world-class performers to create compelling live theater and events. My guest today is the prolific writer and publisher, J.F. Holmes. John served for 22 years in both the regular army and the National Guard um, before really turning his the full brunt of his focus to uh, writing, pr- predominantly military science fiction. Um, my biggest takeaway, I think, from my talk with John, and it's funny, I you know I've had this conversation with several folks. Um, you know, throughout the course of the show, but I, th- I you know, I've, so you guys will probably have heard me riff on this in to some degree in the past, but there's a necessary, I hate to use the word narcissism, but I, I can't think of a better word. I think there's a necessary narcissism to art. Um, no one has ever begged for someone's art before they knew the quality of artist a person could be, you know, there's no inherent demand for art. Now, once you're established, once you've really honed how to get your voice out there in whatever medium you, it is, you do your art, then yes, there is demand for it. Um, you know, people want to know the next M night Shyamalan movie or the next Tarantino movie, but you know, no one was going up to Quentin Tarantino, uh, begging him to become a film director when he was in high school. Right. And I say that because there has to be that internal engine in an artist that is no matter how small a part of it it is, it needs to have significant heft in an artist's mind that they need to be somewhat narcissistic about their work for it to see the light of day and for it to get out there. And I think what John's experience has been as a writer is something a lot of artists certainly can relate to. And especially I think a lot of veteran artists, because as a veteran, you are practical. You are acutely aware of the team that you are associated with, whether it's in the military or whether it's out of the military and you're balancing, you know, work-life balance or family concerns or day jobs or multiple day jobs, uh, the need to pay bills, you know, veterans rarely just chuck it all to the wind. Uh, they we, I think generally veterans are a relatively practical group if you have to generalize. So to balance that, those practical considerations with the necessary narcissism of finding that time and mental bandwidth to go into your cave and execute an incredibly demanding creative venture, like creating your own science fiction world in, in which you are writing anthologies and books and, and, you know, a series of books is a hell of a balancing act. And John, I think speaks eloquently and relatably to how difficult that can be and is very realistic about what the obstacles are. Yet, I think like any artist at the end of the day, what makes you an artist is that you just can't help yourself. You got to get it out in some way, shape or form. And, um, and there's a certain nobility and a certain, uh, wear and tear. I think that goes with that. I think that's not, um, it's not an easy path to go on, but it's one that's worth talking about because it's kind of the, um, rough underbelly of the artistic profession. It's away from the the glitz and the glamour 
and the fantasy of what a life in the arts might be like. And instead is about just the, the nose to the grindstone, finding uh, you know how to mainline your inspiration and put words on a page in this case. So anyway, that was my big takeaway from talking with John. Um, I won't give too many spoilers about all the different subjects that he and I talk about, but really appreciated talking with him. Such a great dude. Um, you know, I loved his lack of pretension. Uh, I loved his, uh, I don't know if, what the right word is. Maybe the, uh, there's a degree of smart assery that you can tell is never far from the surface with John. And I, I'm somebody that really appreciates a good smart ass. <laughs> and, and, and so that, that, uh, that made me laugh. And I was, uh, it was a blast. It was a blast to talk to him. Uh, so I think you guys are going to enjoy this one. Um, and I'm interested to see what John does in the future. Um, obviously he, I mentioned before he's a publisher and in 2018 he launched Canon publishing. Uh, and I'm interested to see what more comes out of Canon. Um, and I'm obviously interested and empathetic with anybody that's trying to elevate uh, veteran writers or veteran artists in any way and facilitate other veteran artists endeavors. And, uh, for John to kind of do that, I think is, um, again, a very noble endeavor. I'm interested to see what else comes out, um, under the Canon publishing label. Okay. With all that being said, is there anything else you guys need to know? I don't think so. I think we've covered everything you would need to know to fully appreciate this episode. So on that note, I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. I'm the artistic director at Veterans Repertory Theater, and this is the Savage Wonder of J.F. Holmes. Welcome to the show, man. Good morning. <laughs> Listen, this was a long time coming. I really appreciate it, man. Uh, thanks for putting up with all the ins and outs. I know you've been, you got like 20 things going on that I want to ask you about all at yeah, once, sure, sure. But, uh, but I appreciate you finding the time to squeeze this in. I'm actually uh, starting a shift up at the ambulance. I work every other weekend. I pull a six hour shift volunteering for ambulance. I only drive because as a medical person, I'd probably kill somebody. So I just drive, but you know, it's a way of giving back. So that's awesome, man. No, that's great. I know there's, there's a, uh, our, my friend, uh, Chris Otero does a lot of that work, um, mm-hmm. swears by it, uh, you know, that it's a great post-military endeavor to do volunteer firefighting, volunteer ambulance work, um, yeah. better than join the VFW. And, uh, yeah. I think there's something to that. Yeah. Um, listen, I know you're short on time, so I want to dive in because there's so much ground to cover with you that I don't sure. want to, uh, I want to get right to the meat of it. Let's, I, I guess the first question is having a 22 year military career, but an immense, an immensely diverse artistic career. Mm-hmm. What came first in your life? Were you a writer originally? Were you somebody that wanted to join the military immediately? Who were you as a kid? What was your fascinations? I was a nerd. Um, okay. you know, basically, no, uh, I joined the military at 22 after drinking my way out of college. Um, and I'm just not a school oriented kind of guy. And mm-hmm. so I was walking across campus one day and recruiters were there checking out chicks and we got to talking about girls and stuff like that. And they're like, Hey, why don't you come down to the office? And, you know, so 
uh, 22 years later, I was like, you know, I, I guess they did okay by me, you know? So, but uh, <laughs> no, I'm the only person in my family that served the military since really? my grandfather in World War One. I. I mean, wow. I had some uncles on my mom's side, but you know, directly in my family. No, not, I'm from Long Island, New York. It's not really the, the reddest of places and very military oriented. I did talk my brother into joining the reserves by calling a puss all the time after <laughs> I joined. Um, but other than that, no, not a lot of military service. I thought was, I always kind of wanted to join the military, but you know, like a lot of people that age, I was just kind of floating around. So what about artistically? Had you been writing? Was that part of your life? No, before you not joined? at all. Wow. Uh, not really. I, I mean, I'm a creative kind of guy, but uh, really artistically, I didn't, I started doing a cartoon strip in 2008 or nine called PowerPoint Ranger, mm -hmm. uh, which was kind of a joke, right? Because I spent so much time as a staff weenie that I learned how to do PowerPoint really well. Um, but as far as artistically, uh, I can't sing to save my life. Uh, I do have some talent for writing, but I never really did anything with it. And then uh, I'm a smart ass. So I managed to translate it into my cartoons. And then, uh, I started writing in 2013 because I was watching The Walking Dead and complaining about the lack of military. And my wife said, if you can do better, go for it. So I don't know, 20 something books later, that's where I am. At tw in 2013, had you gotten out yet or were you still in the military? Uh, I was in the middle of waiting for a medical retirement board. And I okay. went into annual training one day because I, I did 18 years in the guard, four years active duty joined the guard you know because it's chill and then immediately 9-11 happened and <laughs> there was no chill after that right? <laughs> um but no i, I was yeah. i got sick in 2010 um and i was just waiting for a med board and i went to at i was getting ready to go to at and i'm like you know what i'm not 19 anymore i got 22 years in it's time for somebody else to move into my spot and i just turned to my gear and said hey you know so i was on the outs, because I knew yeah. I couldn't do the job anymore, so I walked away from it. So by the time you started to really transition into a writer, mm -hmm. you were really ready to move on and direct your full attention to a new endeavor. Yeah, I was also running a construction company and you know working my civilian life. I I am a writer, but I also need to eat, so yeah. I work full time too. Yeah, you know. So, yeah, um, no, absolutely. Being a writer or any kind of artist that supports himself is kind of like being called up to play for the Yankees or something yeah. like that. Other than yeah. that, it's it's a passion and some extra money. But you know, I'm playing in the minors right now. Um, no, I think I think that's that's a fair way to categorize it. I do think. Um, well, let me start with the military piece. Actually, sure, because I want to skip over 22 years and make that seem like that was a footnote. I've um, forgotten the whole thing. <laughs> it's all just one blur, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Go ahead. I mean, what, what did you think? Uh, I mean, did it give you the direction you needed? Did it? And I'm not trying to make this a, an army recruiting no, uh, no, soundbite, no. but but I mean, what did you find that you got out of it? How did it how did it direct you? Um, there's the usual purpose and discipline and all those other things that people talk about. Um, but it gave me a passion for something. I really loved being an NCO, right? Mm. Um, you know, I'm a fairly smart guy, though not as smart as I think I am, as I've been told many times. Um, 
And that's actually not true because people assume because I come off as a smart ass New Yorker that I'm a smart guy. And I know I'm pretty dumb sometimes. All right. But really, I love leading troops and I love the organizational putting the plan together kind of thing. And that has translated as far as getting into an artistic and a writing career. It's given me the tools to to actually sit down and write and, and create and put my thoughts together. And it's also given me my source material. You know, mm, I write sure. military fiction, science fiction, all that kind of stuff. But really, all the characters I write are because I learned how to understand people, right? And one of the things that's not really talked about military, in order to be successful as an NCO or an officer, or any kind of leadership, it's not about knowing whether this tank does this or you know this rifle does that or anything, which you need to do. Um, it's really about understanding what motivates people and how they interact and how to guide them, things like that. And that's been one of the hallmarks I've been told of my writing is that I understand the nature of people. And I write about characters, not, mm. not, you know, action, although there's that, in there, but it really, I, the strength of my characters and the story. Plus I was a recruiter for a long time. So I learned how to be a BS artist and just, it just flies out of my mouth. Not, not that I lie to anybody as a recruiter, but you do learn how to tell stories as a recruiter. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah. but uh, did the NCO thing, did your love of leading, is that what led you to actually start your own publishing company that you were like, Hey, it's one thing to be an artist working by yourself or a writer working by yourself in a room. It's another thing to now bring out the best in others and try to facilitate their success. Absolutely. I mean, I, I get a lot of people who send me, you know, like, Hey, what do you think of this? They'll send me mm -hmm. a script and uh, totally honestly, uh, some people just write and they're okay at it. A lot of people need to be more open to criticism. I mean, mm -hmm. I, that was a hard thing for me to learn. Um, a lot of people think, well, I've got some talent. I'm just going to be an awesome writer. No, it takes a lot of hard, hard work. And I learned a lot of things that I didn't really have any mentorship when it first started. You know, what, 10 years ago, I started writing. And I wanted to kind of pass it on because I saw some people who had talent. Right, but didn't know how to go about things. And, and like any NCO, if I can pass lessons on and not have them, so well, sometimes you do have to be lessons of people. But uh, if I could pass it on and have them be, you know, not have to go through the I don't know what I'm doing stage, then absolutely I will. Um, so one of my uh, co writers, a guy named Lucas, he's a major in the reserves. He and I have a series out. He just first came to me and said, Hey, I've got an idea. Right. And I've worked with him. His grammar still drives me a little bockers sometimes, but you know, I've published him and he's got, he's turned into a really good writer. He's got great imagination. And there's a couple other people I've worked with that. I just kind of want to give it back to them, you know, mm -hmm. and I want to have, I want to have a successful publishing company. I want to make money. Everybody does. Right. But I want to make them money too. And yeah, I want to help them, especially veterans. And also, uh, I ran into David Drake. I don't know if you know him. He's a Vietnam veteran and a famous sci-fi writer at a convention. And we had a long talk about how cathartic, if I'm saying the word correctly, my wife's not here to correct me, um, how cathartic writing can actually be, you know, and, and putting your thoughts down on the paper and just getting that, even if it's just something that's troubling you, yeah. to, to, to put it in order and order your thoughts. So when you started, I, this is going to jump all over the place because I, I think there's just so much, there's so much ground to cover and I've got a lot of questions about how this all 
played out for you and developed. Where were you meeting the writers first? Were, were these people that you knew and that and the community naturally started to evolve, or did you go solicit and find them? Um, I've been arrested for solicitation several times. No, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, uh, because of my cartoon strip, which was on Facebook, mm. uh, I had a large following. I don't do the cartoons anymore because I retired, lost a little bit of touch with the army. Also, they never made, made me any money. So, um, but I had a pretty large following. And from there, I created uh, several groups. One's an NCO club, one's an officer club on social media, which they've got thousands of members. Some are more active than others. So I have a lot of people who know me and they know that I'm open to talking to people. One of the great things about social media is, I mean, back in the day, you can't talk to Stephen King. You know, you can't just send right. him a message right. like, hey, you know, um, but I'm always approachable. People can reach out to me. And I've had a lot of people just say, hey, you know, how can I send you a manuscript? How can I talk to you? Yeah. Or we've been having conversations just as people, you know, just to shoot in yeah. the breeze. And I like them. I know they have an interesting story. And I said, hey, do you ever think about writing? You know, and then, of course, they write something. And I'm like, oh, my God, I should never have asked this. But on the other hand, <laughs> you know, it's on the other hand, a lot of people, you know, once you put time and effort in, you get better. Yeah. So, what do you do um, looking at it as an NCO, looking at the publishing endeavor as an NCO would? Do you do NCOES? Do you do you go out and and I mean, you talked about you know, uh, fixing grammar and things like that. Do you actively try to stay on top of your education to continue my, further your craft? Yeah. And go, and go like, yeah. Like and take workshops or do anything like that. Has there ever been a need for that? Or is that with you? Is it, is it just been, no, Hey, I, I know what right looks like and I'm going to go from there. No, I'm the greatest author. Of ever. No, uh, no I mean, put, listen, so, sometimes it just comes from within and you're like, look, I, I know what works for me. So I, I don't say that as a detriment. No, no, I, I understand. Different, no. for different people. Um, when I first started writing, I, I've always read a lot, right? So mm. there's a lot of, yeah. but that doesn't mean I, I knew what I was doing. I mean, I look back at some of the stuff that I first wrote. I'm like, oh my God, no wonder sure. why my wife would read it, you know? Because um, she said my grammar drove her crazy, right? So I've done a lot of researching other writers and saying, okay, well, this is what works for them. You know, uh, a lot of it is in the technical aspect. How do you format a book? Yeah. What's a good, you know, through plot. Um, my, one of my curses is that I always fall short on a number. Like I just sit down and tell a story. Right. And it doesn't always match up to what's considered a full length book. Mm -hmm. And I've had to work on that a lot over the years. Uh, and then the flip side of things is because I'm self-published, I've had to learn the publishing industry yeah. and that's a lot of work and takes a lot of research and you got to put your time in. It's always changing. So yeah, I, I watch YouTube videos. I read books. Um, I'm not the world's best businessman. Um, and on the flip side, I do hold classes and talk to people. Like I was just at Liberty Con down in Chattanooga last yeah. week and I held a, a like a two hour session on how to get started. And I, I met with a half a dozen people who some of them had work they wanted me to look at and others just wanted feedback. And uh, I said, you know, this is how you get started in business. And these are the things to watch out for. And that's just me sitting, talking to people who are probably never going to, maybe, maybe they'll publish something. Maybe I'll see them again, Right, right. but it's passing it on. And I always need to learn more, especially the business end of things. I think mm -hmm. my writing 
I'm comfortable with where I'm at, although I always try to challenge myself, but the business side of things always, always, always changing. So let's talk artistically to start with. And then I want to ask Mm -hmm. you some business questions artistically. um, QAQC yourself, where, where are your strengths and weaknesses? Do you think as a writer, how have you developed since you started writing in 2013 and what's still Um, left to do? Okay. So where have I developed? As I said, I tended to write short stories, right? So um, I would put like what was essentially two novellas together to make a book, yeah. right? And they have they have an overall plot, right? Uh-huh. But but they were you know part one and part two, and they weren't connected. So I've learned to write longer books. Um, my quality control, as far as if you look at some of my reviews, you always look at three star reviews. You don't look at one or two because they're just somebody with an axe to grind. But right. when you see consistently three star reviews needs a better editor. Well, they're trying to tell you something, right? So mm. I've cut way down on, on those three-star reviews, right? Um, you're going to get five stars from your fans because they just love what you write, but you got to pay attention to the middle. And that's what tells you where to get better. Okay. So my grammar is, is something, uh, spelling editing is something that I've gone light years, you know, mm. better on that. Um coming up with an overall plot that just is longer and I do more character development, you know? So Mm -hmm. that's something that I've worked on. I've gotten a lot better in the future. One of the problems I have is I tend to build these big complex worlds for my, for my books. And then once it gets so big, I I don't keep notes. I keep everything in my head. Right. And I've gotten, I've have eight or nine, different book series and some of the characters are the same you know you write what you know um but i've gotten to the point where i've not continued series because i'm like this is just too much freaking work to remember what this person did you know 200 pages ago and stuff like that other people are keep very very detailed notes and i've learned to start doing that so work in progress got you when you start writing do you start with an idea or do you start with a character? Do you start with um, you, a, a concept for a world? What usually is the origin point for you? For me, usually it's an idea. Okay. So I'll give you an example. I wrote a three book series called invasion where uh, the world was occupied by an alien species and the military had to fight back. Right. And the way that started was I watched Ender's game. Uh, mm. movie which the book was much better but i was standing there in the shower and i had an idea which is where most of my ideas happen i said what if ender lost right if he lost what we what would he have become right if he survived he'd be a bitter middle-aged man in an occupied planet right from there that small smidgen of an idea uh, i wrote a three book series on, on how we oh, would wow. defeat that other things, uh, for example, Fae Wars, um, my buddy Lucas came to me and said, I hate the elves from Tolkien. I think they're a bunch of assholes. Pardon my language. Okay. <laughs> and they should be the bad guys of the book. And I have a scenario where a National Guard unit's caught in a time loop and they keep fighting the same battle over and over. I said, all right, cool. What's the story? I don't know. So <laughs> I sat down and actually wrote the entire first book, which starts out with a Delta Force team assassinating a Chinese spy in the middle of Manhattan. 
And when they're done doing that, they look out the window and there's a portal that opens over Central Park and elves and orcs and dragons come streaming in. And we've written two books. I'm in the middle of writing a third one right now. That is a big world that he and I collaborated on. And a lot of it is his input. Um, but I took his idea and shaped it into something. Most of the time, I just sit down and I start writing. I'm a pantser, as they call it. Oh, got you. Got you. Do you, are you disciplined with your writing? Do you make a point of doing it like every day and you have to be religious about it? Or are you somebody that waits for the inspiration to strike and then finds it just gushes out then? Well, it depends. Uh, I just started a new job working for a certain administration that a lot of veterans are very familiar with. And it's a great place. I love the people there, but it's an exhausting job. And I have not written very much in the last mm-hmm. six months, right? Mm-hmm. Because by the end of the day, I'm, I'm mentally yep. exhausted, right? Yep. Um, and I love it and I hate it because the people are awesome, but the bureaucracy is really annoying. Um, so I have to make it a point to myself to sit down and do that. Other times when I sit down and write a book, when I wrote the first Fable Wars book, it literally just came right out of my, my hands. Now, the other thing is when I did that, I deleted World of Warships off my computer so that I actually stopped playing games and sat down and write. You got to be careful with the distractions. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Other people say to themselves, I'm going to sit down and write a thousand words a day. Great. I just, whenever I'm getting motivated, I do it, unfortunately. Yep. So, yep. I think that's very relatable. And definitely, I think there's no better way to get a lot of random chores done than to trying to sit down and write because you'll, everything suddenly becomes more interesting. Everything. Oh, oh yeah. I got to do that. I got to do that. And it, you'll, yeah, I totally agree. Getting the distractions out of there is a huge thing. Yeah. And that applies to anything. So, right. Right. Why science fiction? Why did you gravitate to it? I mean, I'm assuming you were a fan of the genre to begin with, but why did you stay with it? And why not go in other directions? Um, because, well, I'm not a romance writer. If I wanted to make money, <laughs> if I wanted to make money, I would have written that. Okay, yeah, but yeah, but you know, I, I grew up reading. Uh, Larry Niven, Isaac Asimov, mm. uh, you know, David Drake, right? Guys that wrote military science fiction, science fiction. I love that stuff. I mean, I, I still have hundreds of books up in my office that my wife's always like, uh, you need to clean this place out. I'm like, no, I don't. Right. Mm. You know, like uh, I love James Bond. I've got, you know, first copies of all his original paperbacks. Right. Wow. Just yeah. the heroes that were just every day guys right and you know when you're a kid or a teenager and you're like you know that could be me right yeah then you realize that you're just an average joe and you know you do the best you can but a lot of those people in those situations are average joes but my dad worked on the space program we were always you know oriented towards looking forward to the future and i just really have a passion for that stuff and since i have you know two decades of military experience the passion for one and the possibilities that combined with my experience with the other. And why not? You know, actually John Ringo, sorry, I'm going to interrupt. No, um, you're good. No, I sat down and read a book by John Ringo. Uh, he's got a great series starts with uh, Gust front and it's about an alien. And it's very hardcore military sci-fi. And that was about, well, that was t- holy crap. 9-11 was 21 years ago. Yeah. I was sitting down in a, in a bookstore down in New York city after, uh, 9-11 when my unit was down there and uh, just started reading that. And I was like, you know what? I could do this because I was kind of 
touched back on, on reading all that stuff when I was growing up. But then I was like, you know what? This dude was not just a corporal, but he was, you know, in the military, just like me. Yeah. And he wrote a great series. And, I, you know, when the time rolled around, I'm like, yeah, I could do this. And, you know, this isn't something I can't do. So, right. Well, it's interesting because I think with the, I mean, I'm sure you're seeing every day and, and with all the groups you're affiliated with, I'm sure you're aware, you know, just how many veteran writers are now, you know, a lot out of the yeah. woodwork. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, it seems like everyone's first impulse, their knee jerk reaction is to write their own story, which is completely understandable or find a way to make themselves an avatar in a supposedly fictional piece. <laughs> did you find that for yourself or did you, or was there ever a moment where you're like, yeah, this character's kind of like me and this is hey, I'm, I'm going to, I want to live vicariously through them and, and filter my own experiences through this character. Or was it something uh, where you always wanted to go into another world? No. Um, my very first series and, and my, I guess you call it my flagship series, by the way, it's being released at PXs around the world soon. Cool right deal. On. Right? Holy yeah. crap. Uh, wow. Re- well, I'll, I'll get into that in a bit. Yeah. Uh, and that talks about networking and contacts and all that other stuff. But um, the main character, my that series is written first person point of view, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I did this, I did that. Hopefully I write a little better than that. But uh, it's just an E7 in the National Guard who's confronted mm-hmm. with an apocalyptic situation. And honestly, it's not that it's me because... You know, I, I'm not running around shooting people in the head and stuff like that. And I hope I never have to. Uh, but it's an average common guy's reaction to an insane situation. Right. And everything that the guy does in the book is well, what I do. Right. So Nick Agustin, the main character, is pretty much me, you know, uh, just an average guy trying to lead his platoon or what's left of it and down eventually to something smaller in crazy circumstances. And he screws up, he, you know, does stupid things. He inadvertently becomes the hero sometimes. And I've never been in these situations and I've screwed, but I have screwed up. Right. Um, and I've come through sometimes. So really that main character. Yeah. He's, he's an idealized version of me. So um, plus he gets the He gets the hot girl. so So you were writing romance yeah right Uh, well i wish (laughs) you know actually a lot of my readers are like you know why don't you put all sexy scenes in there i'm like because that's not what i'm writing you know and personally that's that's if the two main characters get together that's as the main character would say it's none of your damn business right so um then if you have to dive into certain tropey stuff just to make things entertaining well then you could probably work on your writing a little bit so i don't write also uh gun porn Okay. Mm. A lot of the, the veteran writers, and yeah. there's nothing wrong with this. They'll spend three pages detailing the muzzle velocity of their high tech yeah. and floor that they built. Right. I don't read that stuff. I don't write it because again, it's characters. So, you know, plus I can't afford all that stuff. Anyway, yeah. So. To, to go do all the research that you'd have to do to. Yeah. accurately. Well, no, I'd have to, I'd have to go buy a $5,000 yeah. rifle, yeah. You know, but yeah, I can't afford it. So when you, um, so have you looked, I don't know, I don't know if critically is the right word, but have you looked maybe psychologically at your work and gone, what is with the stories that you want to tell and the character choices that are made? If you looked and gone, there's a little bit of 
um, going back and fixing problems that you saw in the military or, oh, absolutely. or thinking through like choices that you made and going, hmm, and, and whether the character makes the same choice or different choice. Uh, is that is that still do you consider that a big motivation in your writing or is it less and less of wanted the further away you get from your military career? Well, yeah, actually. Um, so I was a National Guard platoon sergeant. And there was zombie apocalypse happened and I made wrong choices and all my guys died and America fell. And, you know, I'm just having lived through that. I decided to rewrite it. Um, and then I woke up. No. Um, yeah. You know, I wasn't the best NCO all the time. I always learned, uh, you know, when I was in Iraq, I, I had a hard time because I was a forward observer assigned to a transportation divisional level talk. Okay. And I got handed the night shift because none of the officers wanted to work night shift. Right. Yeah. And I missed my kids who were very young at the time. And I was like, okay, this is what I spent, you know, what at that point 13 years in the military for you know 15 years whatever it isn't what i trained for it isn't what i expected to do so i let a lot of that creep into my attitude and you know i was not the best nco all the time there right uh it was a bad unit you've been in your former military or still in whatever you've been in good and bad units right yeah. and some of the personalities rubbed me the wrong way i i didn't deal with things in the best right you know mm -hmm. a lot of combination of things um so yeah, maybe it is idealized versions of things that I did or didn't do in the military. You know, I don't ever want to see combat, but I, you know, what I saw of it in Iraq was mostly just getting rocketed and stuff like that. But I don't, I'd like to think about how I might react to it, right? And, and that kind of thing. Uh, the one time somebody actually, I was in this real severe physical danger was down in Cuba in 95. We were trying to keep, uh, people in the camps from escaping across the border. And some guy jumped the fence and came at me with a steak knife that he'd hidden someplace. And I kind of stood there. I was like, holy crap, this guy's going to stab me. Right. And my partner, you know, tackled him and laid him upside the head. Right. It's just, yeah, I look back on that situation. Probably would, you know, if your partner wasn't there, you might've done something bad. And there's been other yeah. situations where I reacted quite, professionally and well right so yeah you know you sit back and you think what would i have done in these situations and they're yeah. all fiction obviously yeah but, um, yeah you know and that's why i like to have a character sometimes be a bit of a scrub sometimes yeah you know well, and and i think you touched on one of the things that i find to be the most interesting aspects of any veteran's writing whether it's autobiographical or whether it's fiction mm -hmm. is when it gets into the personality-based aspects of military life, which I think are incredibly overlooked, certainly commercially, like when you see, you know, big Hollywood movies that, that rarely the nuances of whether it's talk politics or whether it's, you know, uh, on the line with people, um, or, or the dynamic on a fob or, you know, dynamic of small unit, uh, mm -hmm. operations, you know, just the different ways that the personalities mesh and mingle and conflict is something that's, uh, I think, very, it's nuanced. It's incredibly hard to capture. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, and I feel like the, the moments, I'm thinking specifically of when Scott Mann was on and we were talking about um, his play that's become a movie called Last Out. And uh, there was a great scene where, where his character gets into an argument with his commanding officer. And it, I, I just 
had flashbacks. I was like, oh my God. Yeah, shit. That's it. That's it. You got it. Exactly. You got it exactly yeah. right. Do you find that is is a driving force for you? Do you find like sometimes you're able to go back and whether you let it play out the way it did or whether you make changes that there's still like those arguments or that one asshole that really pissed you off or the way that this situation played out that are just like, yeah, I, I'm going to find ways to shoehorn that in, or not even shoehorn, but to bring that out in the story because it just, it has to be told. Those are still sometimes the things that get us muttering to ourselves. Does that oh, kind of yeah. make the, sense? Yeah. One of the main subplots in uh, my first series, the guy who commands the task force in upstate New York charged with basically, you know, fighting our way back across the wilds now is, I'm not going to say who he's modeled after, but uh, you know, he, he constantly butts heads because he's a very egotistical ass, yeah. right? Yeah. Butts heads with our main character um, because it's all about him. And yeah, I, I've said this before. Um, if you have a great leader or a good leader, they are great. And and especially as applies to officers because they can do so much, right? I've had officers who I would follow anywhere, right? Uh, if you have a bad leader, the reverse is true that they magnify the effects because they're in a leadership position and cause so much more damage than say a bad enlisted guy could do because the, sure. you know, people do what they tell them to do. Um, so in many aspects of my book, I've tried to highlight the interaction between good and bad leadership and good and bad enlisted. And, mm. you know, uh, that's again, going back to the character driven nature of what I write. Yeah. Yeah. That's a very, very important part of it. You know, I have a guy who's one of my fan favorite characters who is a Serbian veteran of the of the war back in Serbia, right? And he's very he's done some really shady crap and he's always calling my main character uh I don't know what level of language we can use here. Yeah, you can use uh, go go crazy. Okay. Well, he keeps calling my main character a pussy, right? Because he mm-hmm. won't do some of the things that he thinks needs to be done in order to execute the mm-hmm. job. Right. He, he will kill anybody, anything if he thinks that's what needs to be done. And the main character is much more like, well, you know, there are some boundaries that we won't cross. And he keeps calling him a pussy for it. Right. Uh, people love him, even though he's not a nice guy. Right. Yeah. So I've run into people like that, too. You know, they don't they, their their single focus is getting the thing done and they don't care about what happens because of it. Right. So I try and bring multiple different kinds of characters into the work that I'm writing. So how much do you, especially the further away you get from your military career and the more years that have passed, can you still hear your characters when you're writing them? Is it easy or are there times where you're like, God damn, I, uh, I remember this. I know who I want. I I know an amalgamation of who I want to write this character like, but I'm, I'm missing. I can't hear their voices that well. Does that ever happen? Um, it depends on the on the book series, right? Okay. So my regular scout team series, I could sit down right now and you tell me what kind of story you want, and I will write you a short story with all of those main characters. Just they live in my head, honestly. Yep. Like I said before, I don't keep notes on anything, right? I've reused the same characters in different universes. They are literally the same character, but now they're on a spaceship and it's the 23rd century, right? And my fans, I've gotten away from that, but Fans are like, hey, that's kind of cool. Multiple universes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, if you ask me what Nick Agustin would do in any given situation, I will tell you in a second. Although, as the series has progressed, he has changed and grown, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, which hopefully characters do. You don't want anybody to be the same in book 10 as they are in book one because that's there's no growth, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, but yeah, so other books, you'd have to remind me who they are, but I would, I, it, once I sat down and took a peek, I'm like, yeah, I can write that guy. Again. Um, so on other books, uh, okay, cool. They were great. And all right, we'll move on, you know? So yeah. what about the units? Um, I mean, when you're writing for a, what strikes me as a great opportunity that so many folks miss, especially when you talk about Hollywood or whatever, you know, when you're writing for a national guard unit versus like a tier one type unit, mm-hmm. the, the difference in, um, in personalities, the difference in speech, word choice, uh, you know, either even rhythm and syncopation of, of speech. And obviously I'm talking about like how they're talking versus, you know, maybe other choices that would show up in a book, but mm-hmm. um, the, I, the nuances that maybe to the average reader might be completely, they might completely miss, but is there any, I, I'm, I'm, I just am curious about your process with uh, and the fun you have knowing the nuances and being able to detail nuances between different kinds of units and different kinds of services and, and the rank structure and all that, all those little things that a civilian writer would never pick up on. Um, is, can you just talk for a second about like what that's like for you and what you do to keep that sharp? Well, two things. First of all, sometimes it's hard because, you know, if, if I'm writing a character who's say a black guy who grew up in the city, right. And, you know, is a civilian and it got Shanghai onto this team. Um, it's hard for me to draw a line between vernacular and personality, right? And you don't want to write it so that's so far out that you lose people's attention, right? Right. Even though I may know that's how some people speak. On the other hand, there's a way of conveying that. So one of the first scenes in one of my books, there's a National Guard specialist who's complaining to his platoon sergeant, hey, how long are we going to be doing this bullshit? Because I've got a webcam site to run. You know, and and one of the sergeants gets really offended because she's like, you know, you're a freaking pervert. And he's like, hey, why don't you come on my my webcam? I'll make you a lot of money, right? Obnoxious, annoying. A lot of civilians might be like, oh my god, you know. But that's how guys talk to each yeah, other, right? Yeah. And and his his platoon sergeant's like, first of all, we're on duty. It's Sergeant Agustin, not Nick. Okay. Second of all, you're a scumbag. I don't care how much money you make. And they're, they're just picking on each other, right? right, right. Um, some of those things, I, I've had people who are civilians, like my mom. She reads one of my books and she's like, do you guys really talk to each other like that? I'm like, yeah. kind of, yeah. You know, plus I grew up with four brothers and it's kind of like being in the military. You all just yeah. pick on each other nonstop. Um, so it, it can be hard to show those differences that's why you really got to inflect much more personality. It's always action Mm -hmm. and how people do things instead of description. Right. So you're going to have a kid from Alabama, the sticks in Alabama react very differently than somebody from New York, right. You know, New York city, Mm -hmm. but they still have to interact with each other. Right. And you have to show that by action and, and, some description, but dialogue and action. I'm very big on show, not tell. Yeah. And I don't do information dumps like, oh, all this happened. 
right? right? It's characters reacting to things that tells a story. So, and I, I'm digressing. Don't ask me ever to talk about stuff. This I'll talk and talk and talk. All right. <laughs> no, listen, um, this is the place for it. I yeah. mean, well, well, you're bringing up actually something that I've struggled with mm-hmm. when I've tried to put pen to paper um, and talking about military and, and trying to capture moments among military members is how much military members mirror each other's speech because there's certain phrases, certain aphorisms, certain ways of talking that you just say in the military. Do you ever run into that in your writing where you're going, crap, I can hear them saying it, but when I put it on paper, they all sound like the same person because you're just hearing the words and all the words are the same, but but there's so much else going on behind that. Has that ever been a thing? for you that you've ever found? Well, when I joined the military, I used to talk like this, all right, because I'm originally from Long Island, right? So eventually, after a while, I started to talk like this. <laughs> everybody else in the military talks like this. And I know you're not talking about accents. You're talking about the differences in the military people, right? So, and now I have my neutral tone that I speak, yeah. my neutral accent. Yeah. Um, I try very hard to avoid that. Right. So if I have an artillery unit, I'm not going to have to sit there babbling about fast cam and HEPD and, you know, quick time fuses and all that other stuff. Gotcha. I may put it in there, but there's always somebody there as a neutral observer. Right. Mm-hmm. Who, who will. Mm-hmm. Who will talk about, you know, I try and I, I try and keep it non-military as much as I can. Right. Because. Gotcha. gotcha. And, and again, not even between branches, but just between. Uh, call it MOS or whatever you want. I could sit down with an infantry guy and I'm an artilleryman. I may not have any idea what he's talking about when it comes to certain things, right? I've been a tanker. I've been an artilleryman. I've been in Sigma Corps. You know, all those have little different things. Never mind just being Army versus Air Force versus. Right. right. I also have a really dedicated fan group, uh, the command post, hint, hint, plug, command post on Facebook. Uh, where it's full of veterans. And if I don't know what I'm talking about, first of all, I can ask them, you know, what color are the, uh, the lights inside a, a Black Hawk? I thought they were red. No, they're actually green. Okay. They'll answer. I put up short, you know, I put up chapters and they're like, that works, but this is how something mm-hmm. will be done in this, right? So that's where I get a lot of my authenticity from. As gotcha. far as, as far as, yeah, that's something I see people make a big mistake about, right? If you're going to write, like very detailed technical military, you're limiting your audience. I want my books yeah. that I can say, hey, Joe Sixpack, who's never served in the military, but has watched SEAL Team Six on whatever right. channel that's on. Right. Um, I want you to be able to sit down and read my book and be like, that's a great, interesting story. Okay. And I'm not lost in the details. Right. So I try and avoid that to answer your question. I, I really do try and because again, we're focusing on the human aspect. Yeah. Are they going to talk to talk? Yeah, but the more you dig into detailed, specific stuff, the more your reader's eyes going to glaze over if they don't know what you're talking about, right? Yeah, no, that that makes uh, a lot of sense. I know we're running short on time, so let me. I'm going to skip no, over a couple of gonna, questions. I'm gonna, wanna, unless oh, you hear the ambulance siren go off. Oh, you're good. Uh, I'll sit here and talk forever. I, I got to right, tell good. my other. I got to tell my other driver that he can leave twelve, so maybe we could take like a, a yeah break. No worries. But yeah. Until until you hear some, you know, okay. old person fell down. Okay, Betcha. cool. I got to go. Right. Okay, I love it. Um, 
So uh, let me ask about, uh, I, I can't let this go. Tell right. me, what is space opera? Um, well, it's, well, space is space, obviously, right? Mm-hmm. Um, opera is, is the idea that the, what you're working in is a very grand scope of things, right? So military science fiction, I consider my stuff, even though I have a series set, uh, you know, 27th century, it's got aliens, it's got all that other stuff. It's military sci-fi because it focuses on the boots on the ground. Okay. Space opera, like David Weber's stuff, which is the classic modern example of it, is a very broad scope, uh, epic, historical kind of uh, talking about interaction between nations, between systems, even though it's very, you know, it may be very personal detailed. Uh, I wrote one book called Under a Different Sun, which is set in a in a universe where there are space empires and they're fighting each other. Uh, and the focus is on one ship, but there's all these other broad interplays going on. You know, the, the British space empire hates the French space empire. Uh, sure. You know, the Americans don't really exist anymore, except as a covert thing, trying to reestablish America. There's all these themes of it that are on a grand scale. Gotcha. Right. Whereas my fallen empire one, yes, there's big themes. It's, you know, the setting is, is galactic, but it focuses on, you know, the firefights on the ground and, and that kind of stuff and, and people development, and those kind of things. And it, oh, sorry, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was going to ask, how did you like doing it? Did you find it challenging to pull back and kind of take this broader geopolitical view or did you find it freeing? Um, I never wrote a second book. I, 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 I love the book, um, yeah. but I, I couldn't be bothered with the, the big details uh, on what was going on. And I, I the, you know, a lot of space opera involves political intrigue and non-military stuff going on behind the scenes. And it, okay. So I, I liken military science fiction to uh, street rap. Let's call it that. And mm-hmm. space opera is the fat lady singing on stage, right? Mm-hmm. You know, with a, with a cast of, of of dozens who are this grand swelling kind of mm-hmm. stuff. And then, whereas when you're writing the military science fiction, at least at my level, it's a couple of guys standing around a, a 55 gallon drum, yeah. just yeah. spewing rap out, right? Or street poetry, whatever you want to call it. Right. So it's not this big huge grandiose overwhelming operatic thing with background orchestra backing you up and everything it's just the raw and simple right there with the guys i, I don't know if that explains no it. that that explains a lot and it sounds like i mean military science fiction the way you're writing it sounds like you're biting off a lot anyway because oh, yeah. you are doing it in all these big universes right. that might have different rules about them and i wanted to ask about that how are you coming up with the universes? What motivates you to create a new universe or, you know, why not put them all in one universe where, you know, all the rules and everything stays the same, no matter what, or, or do you just find like, Oh, I want to toy with this idea or with this concept. So I need to create a new world for them to exist in. It's different every time. Okay. So first of all, the, the zombie killers or regular scout team one came 
at my disgusted Walking Dead. Okay, all right, mm-hmm. and I'm like, I like to say that the undead in that book are just a background prop. Okay, they're they're the thing, right? Um, with my Fae Wars series, as I said, my friend Lucas hates Tolkien elves. Okay, well, how do we turn that into a story, right? So basically, we opened up our Dungeons and Dragons books because I'm a nerd and play every other Saturday night. Yay. Um, and said, okay, well, these are the, the magic rules. We're just going to rip them straight off of, you know, D&D. Uh, and how would it face off against our technology, right? Um, for Fallen Empire, again, I was talking with Lucas. He and I are both uh, big Roman history fanatics, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And I am fascinated by the fall of the Western Roman Empire and maybe how it relates to, uh, you know, what we're going through. And so that series is set in a much larger universe that very closely mirrors the fall of the galactic empire, right. Or the Roman empire. Right. Um, so I don't know. It's just me thinking of stuff. I think I constantly think and think, and I have a conscious stream of thought that comes out of my mouth. Mm-hmm. And sometimes my wife's like, I have no idea what you're talking about because it's completely different than what you were talking about 30 seconds ago. Right. You know, and, and not that she's, it's a runaway not, train of thought, but you know, I yeah, get you. yeah, yeah, she's yeah. a brilliant person herself, but she's much more linear in her thinking. Sure, um, I'm like, well, this is how I got to it. You said this, and then step, 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 and what came out of my mouth completely not related to what you right. said, but there's a connection right. there, right? Yeah. You know, so like yeah. for example, in the background, you have a bunch of what I'm assuming are authentic Hawaiian surfboards. Yeah, I'll be honest. Those were my uncles, and I have no idea where they came from or what they are. And they're just sitting there as I try to figure out where to put them. I've got a bunch of my stuff elsewhere in the room, but yeah, that's actually his. So I actually really know very little about them. You don't want to tell you the entire story of how your uncle got them? Sure, I could. Um, so basically, your uncle served in the Merchant Marine. Okay, he's a lot older than he looks, um, and he caught the tail end of World War II. All right, uh, although he looks very youthful, he's a lot older. And he met this girl in Hawaii when he was on leave. Uh, this is around Vietnam time. He was towards the tail end of his career. And she was actually a descendant of King Kamatamalea. And those are royal surfboards that were owned by the last king of Hawaii. Right. I just do. I just make I this it. stuff up. I, love I, met a, I met a guy who was a colonel at Liberty Con who actually got shot down over Laos. Okay. Wow. Dropping bombs in a Ho Chi Minh jail. That's awesome. Right. Yeah. I, I sat there and talked there for an hour and I'm like, so he's like, yeah, so there I was 20,000 feet and I, I landed. And I'm like, well, how long did it take you to get picked up? And he said, well, they were actually almost there when I, when I landed, right? I said, are you sure you're not just bullshitting me? And that's a cover story for after you landed and you met a Hmong princess and you spent <laughs> a year and a half as a guerrilla leader up in the Vietnam highlands. And he's like, uh, you're not supposed to know about that. He played right along with me. And that's I'm like, then you went and, and kidnapped General Gap from Hanoi. <laughs> And then afterwards, uh, before that, weren't you in Cuba? Because he told me you flew white planes, right? I said, didn't you, weren't you involved in the Bay of Pigs? And you actually stopped the nuclear confrontation between the U.S. and the USSR by kidnapping Russian, by getting Russian KGB defector out of Cuba. <laughs> and he's like, where do you come up with this stuff? I'm like, dude, I'm a writer. I would just, yeah. like I said, with your surfboards, I could just yeah. make stuff up, right? So there you go. No, I love it. Do you- how long does it take you to write being that so much of this is instinctive with you and that you're able to conceptualize ideas, themes, characters relatively quickly? How long do you find yourself taking to actually write a book forever? Really? Well, if I really sit down, I could, 
the fastest I knocked out a book was, I think, three, three or four months. I wrote First Fallen Empire. And I said, you know, I work full time and yeah. I volunteer at the ambulance and I got a family. I've got two and a half awesome kids. Right. Um, I say half because my stepkid, but she's still cool. Um, I, I'm busy and I work yeah. for the VA and it's exhausting. Um, you know, so if I'm not into it, it takes forever. I'm also always working on two or three books at a time. All right. Now, I've got a buddy, Rick Pat, uh, Pat, Pat, I don't know how to say Rick's last name. Rick is an awesome guy. I met him for the first time at Liberty Con. That dude knocks out like a book a month or, wow. or two. Right? Wow. He is a machine. And I'm like, how do you do it? He's like, I just sit down and write. I'm like, I wish I had your discipline. If there's anything that I could wish I could improve would be my discipline when it comes to sitting down and writing. And the other thing is, I get bored sometimes with things that I'm doing. Like, yeah, yep. I did a comic for three years. I know like, eh, it's getting kind of repetitive. You know, I, I lose interest in projects. I've been at writing for 10 years now. And, you know, to, to get a new idea out, it's got to be something that really sparks my interest. It's why I have the third book for my off-world series just kind of sitting there, you know. Mm -hmm. um, oh, that off-world. What if we were the aliens and we invaded them? I mean, that's just an idea that popped into my head, right? And that turned into a two-book series about a National Guard or a Light Infantry Regiment defending an Earth colony on Alpha Centauri from these nine-foot-tall rhinoceroses who have a medieval technology, right? You know, but two books into it, I'm like, where am I going with this? You know, and I, the third book is just kind of sitting there. So do you outline? No, I just sit down and write and it, it hurts me wow. sometimes. Uh, sometimes I will know where I want to get to, but how I get there, I don't know. I, I, I sit down right last night. I wrote like maybe 500 words. I wrote a scene. I'm not happy with where a book is going. So I started thinking ahead. Well, where do I want it to be? And how do my characters get there? And I'm like, okay, well maybe this happens. Right. But it it never ever turns out anywhere but like again like my conscious stream of thought about your uncle's surfboards your uncle was a cool dude man he had a hell of a life um it, it's 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 the same thing and that may hurt me because i don't write these long involved plotted out stories but on the other hand it's just how i write you know so yeah have you ever tried to outline and you go yeah that's not just not for me I actually driving back from Liberty Con a couple of years ago, uh, my wife and I had a couple of days in the car and we outlined an entire book. Wow. And I lost all the notes because <laughs> she wrote them down on paper. I'm like, oh, this is great. And stuff in my backpack. And then over the intervening time, it's just disappeared. It's about a cop who is investigating a string of murders because there's a new drug on the market that. Uh, puts people in, in stasis, right? And whatever they're feeling while they're in stasis is their last emotion. So wow. normally people shoot heroin and then shoot stasis, which is called Stacy. But there's a serial killer who tortures people, then puts them under. So they spend what's essentially an eternity in the greatest terror and pain in their life, right? And there's also an insurgency going back on because we fought, fought a war with China and we kind of lost, and you know, I, it was a great book. I had that's still all in my head, 
but we plotted the whole thing out and I could have written that nothing flat. Oh my God. Oh, that's heartbreaking. Jesus. Yeah, it's the writer's life. Wow. Talking about uh, when you, when you talk about the, the, I think very relatable, um, boredom factor, which I think every writer deals with where Mm -hmm. you, you get, sick of the sound of your own voice or your own thoughts or, and you've beaten the hell out of something and you're like, I oh, got, I really want to move on from this thing. It becomes a yoke. Did Canon, when you started Canon publishing, did that alleviate some of that? Because now you could direct your creative energy in a different path and look at other people's problems as opposed to you, as, as opposed to your own. In a way. Um, I, I don't know. I'd, I'd have to say, honestly, no, because I don't get as invested in other people's work as I do on my own. Right. Okay. So, um, yeah, I, I'm not going to publish a book if I'm not really interested in it and like it, but I'll be honest. I, sometimes I read some of the books and we haven't published a lot of, of other authors, but sometimes I'll just read the books just for grammar and story and see if it's a good story. And I'm not really, you know, I think other people might enjoy it. Um, but it, not as invested as I am in my own works, uh, you okay. know, so uh, Shane Grice, who I hope I hope you interview him someday. He's a great guy. He's a active duty colonel right now. He wrote a book in um, my Fallen Empire series, right? And it wasn't really inside my wheelhouse. It's a little bit different. Uh, same, you know, it was obviously my universe, and I had to kind of keep it within the guidelines. Uh, you know, that's it, but it was a separate story from stories I was writing. So I was like, okay, cool. I read it for. Uh, it was interesting. It was a good story, uh, but I was much more focused on: is this set up right? I was I was more focused on the technical aspects, sure, than okay. than becoming invested in the story itself, right? Now, as with Fay Wars, because Lucas and I are alternating writing the books, I wrote the first one, he wrote the second one, I'm writing the next one. I need to be invested in that because the plots are, you know, they're they're continuous, different characters, but they're interacting with their together right um so that obviously i'm much more invested in because shane's book you can pick it up and read it and be like this is a great mercenary book right mine and lucas's books you can't go from one to the other without having read yep the other you know what i'm saying right yeah and actually that that makes me want to ask can you talk a little bit about co-writing and i know what you and lucas are doing with the alternating books is one thing but especially on the books that you've collaborated on, what is that like for you? How, how do you find the, the co-writing process and what have been the ups and fall and, and downs of kind of doing that? I actually haven't really co-written anything except a short story, right? Okay. I've written short stories in other people's worlds, which is like Mike Williamson has his freehold universe. Um, so I've been given directive on what they want to see. And where things should be placed. And I obviously have to know the material, but I wrote it. The one short okay. story I wrote that I collaborated on was with uh, Jason Cordova, who's a great writer. Okay. And basically, it was two snipers going up against each other, and we just alternated writing scenes. So he wrote a scene from his point of view of his guy. I picked it up from my guy, right? It was kind of like alternating episodes of television. They don't even actually interact except mm-hmm. by shooting at each other until the end of the book or the end of the story that was just us he wrote an email it was like playing chess back and forth he made his move i made my move right that was really cool and we enjoyed doing that together um other than that the other the only real collaborative stuff that i've done is world building 
right? So nowadays, a lot of people write in each other's universes, and we have something called the Bible, which is how the universe operates, main characters, technology, creatures, worlds, all that kind of stuff, which the other writers will use to write their own stories off. And we do all that through Google Docs. Um, so if somebody, let's say you were to ever be interested in writing in my Fey Wars universe, we don't have a Bible for that one because it's just me and Lucas, but Fallen Empire, right? Mm-hmm. There's like a 40-page document that yeah. tells all about what's going on, right? So if you ever did want to write a story, hint, hint, in my stuff, you would consult that. And obviously, it's it's riddled with inconsistencies and accuracies. It's, a, it's an ongoing work, right? Sure. And you should read all the other material too. But that's how we do a lot of collaboration base. All right. It, it's Mike Williamson's world. Uh, when I write in it, I can go reference uh, my buddy, Jamie Ibsen, who's an awesome writer too. He actually is the Bible keeper for Mike's freehold. Universe, mm. Right. That is a very elaborate document. That's like a hundred pages long. Okay. Wow. I can look up anything. My stuff tends to be a bit messier because again, I keep everything in my head. Um, but I'm not sure I can actually sit down and write a book with somebody collaborate because I I think my writing style is different from that person's writing style and vice versa. So kudos to those that can do it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to ask about the dragon awards because that that's not a, um, you know, that's not a nothing achievement to have had two books become finalists for the dragon awards. Yeah. It's actually a lot to you. It's actually the equivalent of becoming president states uh no um so vote for me no so let me explain dragon awards uh there's the hugos and nebulas which are traditional science fiction and fantasy awards um there's a lot of politics involved in those and the people who run dragon con in atlanta said we're gonna do something different we're gonna make it fan-based okay so in 2017 uh i put in two of my books for nominations and the way it works is you get enough nominations by people voting uh, just online that you become a finalist and they pick six and then a panel of judges picks the winner. Right. Mm. Um, or no, actually they pick the six final. I'm trying to remember how exactly it works. It's a fan choice, but it's a fan based. Yeah. Right. Right. Voting system. Yeah. Now the problem is over the last couple of years, the big guys have said, Oh, well, Hey, look at this. It's another award. And I say big guys and be like more traditional public publishing houses, like mm-hmm. tour or, you know, science fiction publishing houses or horror or fantasy. And they have the resources to get enough people to get out the boat. Okay. Uh, so for me to do the same thing again, I'm just not at that level. Right. I don't have the name recognition of like, say Larry Korea or somebody like that. I'm not saying it's impossible, um, I'm a good writer. I'm not the greatest out there. Okay. You put me up against, you know, David Weber or somebody like that. I'm going to say, uh, I'll totally admit I write good stories. I'm a great writer. I'm not Stephen King. You know what I'm saying? Right. right? right. And I may be Stephen King with the, you know, how well I write, but I'm not Stephen King, the mega, you know, famous author. Right. right. So right. people, if they look at the slate of dragon awards, now they're going to say, Oh, Stephen King to vote for him because he's awesome right yeah. who the hell is this guy um that's one of the things about publishing nowadays you have to understand it as a business okay yeah. you have to understand how the amazon algorithms work you have to know when to drop books don't ever drop a book in september because it'll 
it'll crash, right? Um, you have to understand how to spend money on advertising. Uh, there's so many different social media platforms now that you spend almost as much time writing, uh, almost as much time advertising and trying to you know talk your stuff uh, as you do writing, right? And the Dragon Awards is another similar thing. I, I put Shane's book, um, Battle Drills, up for the Dragon Award this year because I'm not going to compete with one of my authors, right? right? And I actually haven't written anything this year to qualify. Um, but Shane's a new author, right? And he doesn't have the name recognition of like John Ringo or something else like that. And if he's up against those people, it's going to be kind of tough to make that uh, finalist list. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So the fact that I, I did get two books to be dropped to be finalist, that's awesome. And I think most indie publishers have a shot at that yeah. to actually be the winner. It's tough. Uh, and hopefully someday, uh, either myself or one of the people that write with me uh, will be there. And, but if not, Hey, it's still a nice thing to tag onto my books, you know, 2017. Absolutely. Yeah, right? absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I, I take it as a, a recognition of my talent, hopefully. But again, in 2017, I was able to advertise a lot. Hey, vote for me. Now on Facebook or whatever social media platform, you can post a link to the, the hey, vote for me thing. And they'll show it to, uh, say, if I have a thousand members of my fan group, they'll show it to like 50 people, right? It was a much different atmosphere five years ago, even. Than it is now. You mean like the algorithm will not send it out to everybody that it's unless, send it out unless to. you pay for them, unless yeah. you pay, right? Yeah. And I don't have the resources like, say, maybe that you know, publisher XYZ who's been in business for a while has to spend the money to get that out to older people, sure. right? Sure. So, and I'm not saying that money wins it because talent obviously wins it, but it's just a harder. It's and the other thing is now with self publishing, there are a million books out there. Yeah, you know, ten years ago there was a hundred thousand. Now there's a million. Uh, ten years from now there'll be ten million. How do you stand out from the crowd? It's really hard. So, what inspires you now? Um, do you read books and get in, and find inspiration that way? I know you're on a treadmill with work and family and the volunteer stuff. Like, there's a lot going on. Where? What are your sources for inspiration at this point? Um, I don't read a lot of fiction anymore. I, I, I like reading more history stuff. Uh, mm. As far as inspiration, it basically, it's the need to get a story out, right? You know, I, I love talking to people, and sometimes I just have the story. It's got to come out. Uh, what inspires me, and again, we've talked about where these ideas come from. Um, and as I said, the last six months, my brain has turned into mush because, yeah. you know, um, but something will strike me and I'll feel a need to just get it out there. Right. Or the other thing is I see something that somebody did and I'm like, well, maybe I could do it better or at Mm. least as well. Right. Um, You know, Chris Kennedy has a publishing company and he's got the four horsemen universe, which is space mercenaries. It was created by Mark Wandry. Chris and Mark are great guys. Their space mercenary stuff focused on uh, armored combat suits. Right. I'm like, well, I love space and stuff. I'm not saying I ripped them off, but mine's, mine's much more focused on just 
regular infantry guys on the ground who may or may not have the best equipment. They're dealing with things as best they can, a little more gritty, I'd like to think, right? So sometimes it's like, well, hey, everybody else is doing it. Let me give it a shot, right? Um, and I have my own unique take on things. We like to say in science fiction or any writing, there's nothing new under the sun, right? Right. Um, so that's my take. Uh, have there been stories about high tech versus magic? Sure. You know, aliens invading the, the United States. Like I said, John Ringo started off with that 20 something years ago, but that's been all the way back to the war of the world with HG Wells. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's just a lot of these things are my take on what, how I think things would go or could go, whatever. Uh, what's next for me. I don't know. I have a little secret Facebook group that I'm the only one in and I just throw ideas in so I don't lose them. And if I'm kind of at a loss, maybe I'll jump back in there and say, oh yeah, three years ago, I thought of this and maybe it's time to turn it into a story. I'd love to find the notes on that one book I wrote because, you know, it's going good. Um, I have half, I have like two or three books that I wrote at a half-hearted attempt to do something. I wrote a fantasy book. Right, which was very much sword and sorcery because I love Conan the Barbarian growing up and everything, mm-hmm. and it did okay. And I think it was a really good book, but I didn't know enough about marketing to actually market it well. I didn't have a good cover, so it just kind of fell on its face. And it was short. I might haul that back out, redo it, and, and put it out there. You know, and now that I know how to market better and I have a good cover artist, uh, maybe it'll do better this time. You know, it was a world I like building. Who knows? We'll see. Or I could get off the phone with you here and uh, be like, hmm, what's it like to actually be a, co- a podcaster? But in reality, you work for an intelligence agency. And this is your way of keeping track of the guys that are coming up with these ideas. And oh, yeah, Holmes, I'm interviewing Holmes because he actually revealed an ultra secret program. How do I get him to come down here to West Point or wherever you are to, you know, you well, know what I'm saying? No, no, that's but that actually reminds me of that. Um, you remember that that post 9-11 meeting that the Bush White House did where they brought in all these fiction writers to talk about different ways and and kind of roundtable just creative ways that terrorists could hit the US. Do you remember hearing about that? I did hear about it. And the Navy actually does a lot of uh, yeah. they host a thing every year for, you know, basically science fiction writers to have yeah. how you know, but yeah, yeah, I do remember that. Yeah. I mean, that's crazy when that stuff actually, yeah, comes up for air and you actually see that crossover between the two. Yeah. Um, I, I wanted to ask about the command post because since you plugged it, um, but it also seems like you feed a lot off it. Like that's been really, that's been a constant source of inspiration for you. Can you talk a little bit about it? Sure. It's just, it's a fan group on social media and uh, it's on Facebook. It's called the command post. And I got started using that because I would take each chapter of my book and I put it up there. And I, I, I write the people like how many drafts of stuff do you do? I'm like, I one, And then I, I go over it for grammar and stuff like that. But what I write is what you see pretty much. Right. And it drives other people crazy because they're like, Oh, I rewrite stuff five, six, seven times. Um, I put the chapter up there and I get feedback from the guys. And they're like, this is great. Or kind of sucks right you know and i will go back and rewrite things based on their interactive feedback so that is actually a really cool something that earlier writers didn't have i'm sure they got fan and stuff like that but this is a way for me to interact with people and i've actually become really good friends with a lot of the guys on there 
because they're always, you know, they're, they're talking to me or participating. Right. And sometimes they'll be like, Hey, I'm going to be up in your area. You want to get a cup of coffee? Normally I'm like, no. Mm-hmm. All right. Because maybe they're a whack job, but I've, on the other hand, there's guys that I've been talking to. I've made them characters in my books and stuff like that. And they love that. Um, and then they, you know, I've made a couple really good friends out of that, that are people I hang out with now and just, you know, so it's much more a, a living environment and, and helps the developmental process than as if I were just doing this 20 years ago. Right. Yeah. On the flip side, Facebook is a legacy platform. And the guys that are in there, they're in their 40s and 50s and 60s. And they may have been on Facebook over the last 10 or 15 years to start out as a 25-year-old. But now they're 40. And the guys I still want to reach, the kids who are the E4s and E5s and want to read fiction and stuff, they're just not, they're on different platforms and, and it's hard to reach them. That's the other issue that we have as authors, not to you know diverge, but- No, 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 no. I was going to ask anyway. Yeah, I've got three kids, right? Uh, 24-year-old, 22-year-old, 17-year-old, okay? They don't pick up books and read them. Yeah. They, they don't pick up paperbacks. They Maybe they might read them on a Kindle or on their phone, but their medium is visual and auditory. So I whenever I write, I'm like, I have to think, is, is this going to be a good audio book, right? Um, you know, how do I reach those younger the younger buyers because I don't think the market is there for them for written word. And there'll always be a market, right? But it's a different generation. And we were talking about this at Liberty Con. Uh, you know, I'm thinking of putting out a webcomic adaptation of Fae Wars because, hey, it's a thing. It's a visual thing online that will get people's attention, right? So you got to be constantly trying to figure out how to adapt to the market. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. And and that seems like um <laughs> I mean, that was the that's the trade-off of the egalitarianism of the writing community now that everybody can write, but therefore you also are your own publishing house, you're also your own advertising agency. You are and mm-hmm. you have to be on top of everything as opposed to the old days where you could just focus on writing, but then you know, the you had a eye hole. Of of people that could actually get past gatekeepers and get get their stuff published. Yeah, yeah. So and, yeah, it's the trade off. It's brutal. It, though. The other thing we like to joke about is uh, Laura Ingalls Wilder, right? Wrote a short story in the eighteen hundreds, and she got paid two hundred dollars for it. Okay, guess how much you get paid for a short story one hundred fifty years later? Two hundred dollars. <laughs> okay, all right. Uh, an Amazon book costs the ebook costs two ninety nine. How much does a cup of coffee cost? You know, three fifty, okay, but they won't pluck down two ninety nine to to read a book, okay, um, because they see they think it's too expensive. Piracy. I, my books are online for about three months before they show up at a pirated site. Okay, wow. there's nothing I can do about it. Uh, I can try and sue them. I can try and put cease and desist, but it'll pop up on another site. I'm like, you know what? If they're going to read it and pay for it, they're going to read it, pay for it. If they're going to steal it, they're going to steal it. There's nothing I can do about it. So the profit margin is super, super thin as far as getting a book at. And the model is also based on churning out books. You know, I haven't written a book myself in about a year and well, no less than that, but you know, I'm 
people are forgetting me already. I'm not saying they're forgetting, yeah. but you no, understand no, what I'm saying? What yeah. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. And that puts you on a real, I mean, that that's a pretty aggressive battle rhythm to be churning yeah. out a book every year. I mean, I, let me just go back to no, a book every before. couple of months. Well, you get, that was insane because when you were like, Oh, it takes me forever, three or four months. And I'm going, Holy crap. Um, you know, I mean, most novelists would go, well, that was five years. I mean, what did, what did Olive Kittredge that I think she worked on that for a decade or 15 years or more. I mean, yeah. it's insane. So for you to be talking about three or four months, it's taking forever to get something out. I'm like, Jesus, that's, that's an insane pace. Um, well, here's the thing. Also, yeah. Here's the thing. Also, people are expecting these gigantic tomes like Game of Thrones yeah. or Harry Potter or something like that, that are, a million words, right? We write pulp fiction, basically, that's 15,000 to 100,000 words. And to sit down, and this is what people expect. They expect a $2.99 for an electronic book that took you hundreds of hours to write, you know, and it's not, I'm not complaining. I'm happy that people are getting their stuff, but the bar has been set so high on what to produce. It's kind of tough to, to meet that, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. Well, and this is why you get all that crossover. You know, everybody's gauged by crossover potential. Can it yeah. be a movie? Can it be something? Can you take it out of the medium and move it into something else? Because books it's themselves are just, that's, that's a rough space to be in. I do got to say that you could take any of my series and move them over to Netflix and spend a lot of money and they would make really awesome series. Hint, hint, if you know anybody in the business. All right. Um, no, they, they probably actually would series because again it's character but yeah yeah getting that lucky break is is hard i mean i've had because i'm a nice guy and a crappy businessman i've passed over things to other people that said i think you would be better for this than i would okay Mm. like i said i'm a nice guy and a crappy businessman right (laughs) but um and they've been successful with it but maybe that was just it is what it is you know so that that lucky break is hard um and it's a lot of it's who you know and who you can get. You know, I send copies of my books to Mark Wal- Mark Wahlberg and mm. you know just actors all the time, and they never get past their gatekeepers. But maybe sure. that one time, they're just right. going to happen to pick up a paperback and be like, "Hey, cool!" You know, guerrilla marketing, got to do it. How much? I mean, obviously, when you're writing military sci-fi, your veteran background does nothing but help. How much do you feel like the veteran card? can be leveraged as a writer. Do you feel like that's a card that just generally you can play pretty well, regardless of the fact you're writing military sci-fi? Do you think there's just um, things will be given a second chance that might not otherwise be given a second chance, or does it really not make any difference at this point? I have very mixed feelings on the whole veteran card thing. Um, Yeah. I'm I'm grateful everybody's service for everybody's service. Uh, But if you put out a crappy product, you could be freaking omar bradley right or you know the medal of honor winner or something like that being a veteran is not going to help you does it open some doors to a market (sighs) kind of sometimes yeah i'm you know but do i want to sell exclusively to veterans no right right right? um i can't stand veteran hero worship okay because a lot of us are big kids honestly i was myself many times all right um and I, I think the whole veteran brand thing, I, I think a lot of people are like, oh, you have to read my stuff because I'm a vet. 
No, yeah. I don't yeah. don't have to. You, you write a good book. Okay. Yeah. I know guys who are civilians who write great stuff. You know, uh Jason Cordova, I, I, maybe he served in the Navy. I'm not sure if that makes a military veteran or not. Um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, Mark Wandry. Okay, Mark, Mark's a great guy, never served in the military, and he wrote this entire, you know, mercenary company thing. And he nails it. You know, Larry Korea. I don't think he was ever in the military. Um, I think veterans are willing to, to maybe they'll pick up your book because you were a veteran, but I, I just don't know. And that's what goes back to one of those marketing things, right? You know, yeah. do you want to build your whole brand on the fact that I'm a veteran? Yeah. You know, yeah. and you don't want to, okay. You want to put out a good product and that's the big thing. Um, and then it's to the point where there's so much, I'm a veteran stuff. Look at my stuff that, people i think get turned off yeah by it, it washes out everything else yeah that's yeah. right yeah sometimes sometimes yeah. does it does it help in that it sometimes it lends a, a, some authenticity yeah but you know what i've never been in a firefight and i've been told some of my combat writing is the best people i've ever read you know yeah, yeah. i understand what it's like to have someone trying to kill you but and i've had guns pointed at me i've never actually had anybody pull the trigger on me and right. but I'm good at translating those emotions and fear, uh, but you know, do I lose some cachet because I've never actually been at that point? And then sometimes I sit there and read stuff by guys that are like, who is it that writes books about everything? Navy SEALs, is it? Uh, I, and it's, it's just as if they're just writing out after action reports on what they did. There's no feel to it, no emotion, you know? So, well, it's funny because to your point, I, I like I, I'm not even saying anything because I can't. I haven't even read a lot a of Navy their stuff. Or? No, I wasn't. Oh, okay. <laughs> not right. at all. Okay. Um, okay. But no, uh, but but it is funny, like how little we read because I see, um, you know, the Jack Cars and all that, and I see how yeah. successful they are, and I and I'm like, oh yeah, I should pick up their stuff and see what it's like. And I, it, but it's it's a and it's a shame of. I mean, I'm blaming myself and and everyone around me for this, but it's like. I, yeah, you just, people don't pick up books anymore, myself included. No, um, we're busy. Well, we're busy and everybody's trying to chase the dragon, right? Everybody's mm-hmm. trying to, you know, going, okay, well, hey, I need to be on this platform and I need to be doing this and I got to do my, you know, four hour workout on social media to, you know, raise profile and build brand and all those things. And, and as I say, it's an understandable trade off. It's the price you pay for the egalitarian nature of, of pushing out product nowadays. But yeah. it is funny how it just, completely undercuts you know the ability to write so i'm saying there's a long way of saying i can't even you know argue or or amplify your your statement because i'm like yeah i know of these people i don't even get to see if it's any good or not um and i probably should um but yeah, yeah. you should and, yeah. and the guys that are successful do put up your product you know like yeah. um there's always those guys that you look at you're like holy crap how does that guy you know reach that level of success because they're just yeah. you know like well, Matt Best, right? Or, yeah. you know, like, oh my God, beautiful wife, you know, got all kinds of guns to play with, puts out, you know, black rifle coffee and all that other stuff because they, they're they perfect for the role and the job. They, they fit right in there. I'm just a dude who's trying to put food on my table and write, tell some good stories. You know, I have a good friend who has a publishing company and we've talked about merging because he's a lot better on the business side. But sometimes I'm just like, I don't want to get that deep into it. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. That, that Because I'll be a lot more involved and invested in 
the non-creative side of the house. And yeah. Yeah. With Canon, because it's my own thing, I could walk away from it as long as I satisfy the contracts I have yeah. at, really at any time. You know, I don't want this whole publishing thing to become, I have to do this because it's my life. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I want to be able to tell stories. I, I make enough money now working my job that I could technically, well, it's always nice to have more money. I could just stop writing and it's yeah. not going to kill me. Right. Um, and I, I want to keep ownership of that, but I don't ever want it to become, like you said, the 27, 24 seven branding thing, you know? So, well, it's funny. You know, I remember years ago I was talking to, um, I was working a part-time job selling tickets at the, uh, I'm trying to think if I'm going to, if somebody's going to get dimed out by my saying this, maybe I'll keep it vaguer. Um, I was selling tickets uh, part-time for a, a prestigious theater and right. the gal who was the manager of the ticket selling operation for the theater had um, gone to Juilliard as an actor. I mean, incredibly prestigious background and resume. And she said, not as she told me with obvious implications about her own life. She said, don't, if you're planning on being an artist and you're good at anything else, you will not be a successful artist. As you, as you said, because if you can be, if you can do anything else remotely, well, <laughs> it's never going to be worth it. And I always, I've, I've thought about that a lot. I don't think she's right, but I do think there's more than a kernel of truth to what she's saying. Yeah. And, um, but I, but I think that does raise the, I think what she's getting at is the prominent obstacle in a lot of veteran artists path, which is that usually either because of their military service or because of qualities that made them successful in, in their military service, they probably are good at other things and other things that are going to make them more money quicker, sooner yeah, um, and, and allow them, you know, an actual life. So it, it, I think the artistic path is, it really has to be something where that motivation for whatever psychological, spiritual reason is just seething in you and you just cannot, you know, it's like air to, because you just got to be able to do it. It has to be that strong to overcome all those other obstacles and, and yeah. the distraction. If I didn't sit and write stories. I don't know if my wife would still stay in the same house with me because yeah. I would just tell yeah. stories to her all the time. I yeah. would just babble. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's, there's gotta have that. And I know this is okay. So I referenced Chris Kennedy publishing before and he's, they've got his, he's got like a dozen authors that work for him and their expressions respect the hustle and, and they call mm. it the factory floor, right? Cause they're turning out product. Yeah. yeah. That's what you got to do to be a successful publishing in this yeah. company publishing company in this business and i respect chris but it, i don't know i don't have that i have another life right you know what i'm saying yeah that yeah i you know i work full-time and hopefully someday i get to retire but i don't ever want this to become the all-consuming thing that i have to go to convention after convention after convention and Absolutely. constantly spend four hours in social media and answer the same questions over and over for podcasts, hosts. I'm just kidding. I, I love <laughs> I love talking to pod. I love podcasts because the give and take and, and the free way. It's it's really cool. You know? No, but but you're you're right, and I think there's and there is such a difference between the artistic side and the business side, and yeah. um and you got to keep your ammo dry for what you most care about, and what mm -hmm. you most care about is telling the story, 
then that's what you got to save that's up. For. I do. Yeah, right. that's right. That's right. But don't get don't get me wrong. The money's nice. Yeah, but the IRS is the IRS is always chasing me because I always screw up and never make my quarterly payments. Right, you know. So, end of the year, they're like, knock, knock, knock. I'm like, oh crap, I owe ten thousand dollars to them. What the hell am I gonna do? I spent it all on car repairs. You know. So that's yeah. another thing. I don't yeah. ever want to get so successful that I have to pay an accountant to figure out my stuff. You know? Oh my so, god. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, oh man, first world problems, dude. This worked out well. It this did. was supposed to, yeah. I'm really glad we could do this. This was, yeah. um, this I had two old really ladies nicely. who, yeah, two old ladies who died because I ignored the address call. Okay. But you know what? They're old. It's so. <laughs> for a good cause. Yeah. No, yeah. it's all right. They, yeah. they died in a, in a noble effort. Um, I, I'll name characters in my books. Here. Be <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure that's more than they could ever have hoped for. Yeah. No. Um, dude, seriously, I really appreciate this, John. This is, this yeah. has been a blast. Um, uh, Anytime, dude, we'll do it again. We'll do it again. We'll talk down the road. Yeah, if you need a co-host, just let me know. No, I'm just kidding. So, are you, awesome, brother. Well, are we're we still live? No, I'm. I'm. I'm gonna. We'll. We'll. Uh, let me see. I don't think there was a proper edit point, so maybe I'll end the show and then we'll just. I'll stay on the air with you. Okay. Um, so, um, yeah. you got a sexy we'll walk down the road. I'm just. I'm just saying. Oh, thanks. Thanks. I. Uh, I, I, I wanted to get that in. The only. That's the only reason my wife stays with me. I'm pretty sure. Of course, we all. Do. Um, <laughs> all right, dude. We'll talk in, in the dangerously near future. Okay, cool. That was the savage wonder of JF Holmes. Wow. Uh, great guy. Can't wait for the next time. Um, yeah, just such a good dude. And uh, I hope you guys got a lot out of that episode. Um, yeah, that's all I'm going to say about that for right now. Um, be fun to see what happens with John down the road. Okay. If you're listening to us on iTunes, we would love it if you go ahead and leave us a review right now. You can say whatever you want, constructive criticism, deconstructive criticism, whatever it is you feel like saying, we'd love to hear it. We'd love to get any and all feedback. If you're on iTunes and writing that feedback, it would be delightful if you could put five stars and attach that to whatever feedback it is you're giving us. That would mean an awful lot because the metrics do matter, but obviously creatively and for production sake, we would love to get substantial feedback and actually, uh, you know, whatever it is you want to say, but if you could put five stars with it, we'd deeply appreciate it. Um, other than that, what's going on at vet rep, uh, a whole lot of things that I mostly can't talk about because they're still in the incubation stage. Uh, if you were in the greater Cornwall, New York area, stop by any Saturday night, we'd love to see you. Um, we obviously have our parlor shows, our staged readings that we're doing. Um, I can't remember off the top of my head when this show is airing. So uh, I believe, oh, it's airing during Death Trap. So if you haven't seen Death Trap before, or if it's been a long time since you've seen it, because it was the, one of the longest running shows on Broadway, certainly the longest running comedy thriller in Broadway history. Um, so if you saw it on Broadway, it's probably been, it's been a few decades. So uh, if you're stopping by Vet Rep to see it, we'd love to see you here. Uh, but don't just stop by to see it because probably you won't be able to get in because we are always sold out because our parlor is only 16 seats. So book ahead, go to vetrep.org as with everything related to vetrep, vetrep.org, V-E-T-R-E-P.org, vetrep.org. When you're on the website, you will see the now playing tab. Go ahead and click it. You will see all of our lines of effort, everything that's going on with us, um, and partake what you will as you see fit. Okay. Um, I'm trying to think if there's 
anything else I really need to talk about. I don't want to just drone on and on and on for no good reason. But that said, if you're still listening at this point, uh, you probably got enough sunken costs in this episode that you're not going to shut it off now. So let me think if there's just anything worthwhile that I need to tell you. Oh, well, let me say this. If you haven't already signed up on our literary blog, do so. Again, go to vetrep.org, go to our Now Playing tab. When you scroll down, you will see the button for our literary blog. Press it. It'll take you to the blog. Sign up. It's free. And every day you get a piece of veteran writing in your delivered right to your email. Uh, you don't have to open anything. It's right there. And then below that writing, there will be just quick blurbs about some of the lines of effort we have going on that day or that week or upcoming things you should know about. So it's the best way of being first in line to find out any and all things related to vet rep. Um, obviously you can always follow us on social, uh, on Instagram. We are at vet rep theater, V E T R E P theater spelled E R not R E. If you're on Facebook, we are at veterans repertory theater. I know nobody knows how to spell repertory. I'll spell for you here. It's veterans repertory, R E P E R T O R Y theater again, E R not RE. So that obviously social is a great place to give us feedback. Follow us. Um, generally you will find out anything going on with us through social, but the best way to probably do it is, you know, jump on the literary blog and which obviously doubles as our mailing list. And that way, uh, you will definitely be queued up first to find out anything, any and everything going on with us. If you are a veteran or the immediate family member, of a veteran. And remember, when we at Veterans Repertory Theater talk about being a veteran, what we mean is military, law enforcement, fire, EMS, foreign service, intelligence services, DOD employees, DOD contractors. If you are or were any of those or an immediate family member of any of those, you are eligible to write for us. So if you want to do that, the best thing to do, go to vetrep.org, V-E-T-R-E-P.org, Go to the submissions tab and you will find out what you can submit to, how you can submit to it, why you should submit to it, who qualifies, what happens with your writing if you submit there. Um, obviously, if you are into playwriting, there can be some money in it for you because we do have grants to give out and we have ongoing playwriting competitions. And if you're not into playwriting currently but would like to, um, give it a spin. You know, reach out, um, touch base with us. Uh, we are trying to grow the veteran playwriting community. And I think when you um, get a feel for live theatrical performances, I think you start, I think that's a great um, gateway drug to get you into playwriting. You have to see theater and go, holy crap, that's cool. And I think it's very gratifying if you're a veteran and a writer who has been writing in a room, nose to the grindstone, and really only having yourself as your own echo chamber. I think it's really gratifying to suddenly have actors be able to bring your words to life, to see your writing become a communal exercise, I think is really cool. Um, and provides a degree of maybe not instant gratification because it takes some work to get a play to a place where actors might read it. But um, certainly when it does get to that point, it provides a sense of gratification that I think is hard to match in any other writing medium. So, if you're interested, go to vetrep.org, go to the submissions tab. We would love to hear or see what writing you have. Okay. I think that's all I have to say for now. 
Uh, we'll see you guys on the next show. Again, I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. Um, my thanks to our producer, Michael Neal. And on behalf of Veterans Repertory Theater, we'll see you next time when we dive further into the savage wonder of it all.